Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are engaging with the words of Shlach Lecha this morning in the book of Numbers. Our triennial reading puts us in chapter 14. So find the beginning of chapter 14. Starts, I guess, at verse eight or something, but we'll we'll back up just a little bit to get our bearings. Six. So we're in the second year of the triennial reading, which puts us at the end of the story of the scouts. And so, what we'll deal with this morning mostly is the text and the ideas surrounding what happens as a result of the scouting disaster. Um, what happened? Let, let's just recap a little bit. What what happened? What is the story of the scouts? Well, the, uh, the scouts came back and they were frightened and they were telling about the, how, how, how big the problem was and that the, they didn't think they were ready. So, who's, whose idea was it to send scouts? That's kind of a trick question, but... It was either Moses or God. <laughs> it was either Moses or God, right? Pick one. Um, so, the tradition, the tradition is ambivalent about who really wanted the scouts to be sent. So, the... It's it's God who says to Moshe, Shlach lecha, send for yourself scouts. So the tradition wants to put it on Moses. That God said, go ahead and send them because you seem to need them. You seem to want them. So, okay, I give you permission. Send for yourself scouts. Because the tradition gets it that already there's something inherently problematic sending Right, scouts to the land who are going to come back and bring a report, especially since we know how the story ends. So there's kind of this 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 complicated relationship to whose idea this is in the first place. But they're not just anybody. These scouts are leaders. They are prominent leaders in the community, um, and so whatever they say is going to be taken differently as authorities than had twelve schlubs been sent. Right. Theoretically, if the people believed Moses and God, they wouldn't have to send the scouts. Theoretically. Yeah, theoretically, they wouldn't have to send the scouts. So... Because they would just believe everything. Part of the question okay. becomes, why are they sent? Yeah. Right? And so that it becomes kind of a military mm-hmm. scouting expedition, right? Like how we're going to take the cities, not whether or not we can take mm-hmm. the cities. That's been assured. God has already promised that's going to happen. So 12 scouts go. How many come back with a negative report? 10. And they are called Eda. They are called the community of Israel. So this is where we get that a minion is 10 people. This is, this is where the word Eda is used first in Torah. Of, said of the 10 scouts who give this negative report. And so Eda, a community, must mean at least 10. 
So, um, so they come back, they give a negative report saying the inhabitants are giants. Their cities have these walls that are absolutely inconquerable. There's no way we can do this. And they spread panic among the people. And then the people get whipped up into a frenzy, as we are wont to do. Uh, and they, they say, forget it, we can't, we can't do this, right? There's, there's no way we can go take those cities. You heard the report. And um, the people, as usual, who do they turn on? Their leaders, right? As we are wont to do. So um, they turn on Moses and Aaron. So that is where we're picking up the story um, after this report of the 10. And who are the two that have a different report? Joshua. Joshua and Caleb, right? Yoshua and Caleb have a different report. They say, it's okay. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be fine. Chill. <clears throat> Yes, Dan. As I was reading this the other day, I was thinking, you know, the spies were, the scouts were directed to go into the land, see if it's a, you know, good land, if, if it's well fortified or, you know, walled or not, if it's a fertile land. And they, did, it, they, didn't, they were not told to only come back with a good report. They were told, go check it out and come back with your opinion. And so 10 of them... From their perception, that was their opinion. And so it seems like they sh- that shouldn't be considered a sin, or else they were set up, then we don't really want your opinion. Come back with a good report. So this is part of the challenge, right, that we face with the text. This is why a lot of the, the commentators want to put it on Moshe, the traditional commentators, because there's a problem that it looks like a setup. And then God doesn't come out looking very good in the story. Right. We can't have that, God forbid. So, right. so it's really Moshe who pushes and God finally acquiesces, right? So there's, that's where some of that comes from. Is it, it can look a lot like a set, what did they do wrong? But that's my question. Right. What's the sin exactly? So, right. So there is not a lack of discussion in the literature, uh, about what the sin is exactly. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of Aviva um, Zornberg and uh, told through the lens of Rabbi Yael Shai that goes exactly to that question. So turn to, keep your finger where you are at chapter 14 and flip back to the end of chapter 13, verse 32. Because I'm going to answer your question, Pam. Okay, you got verse 32? All right. So thus they spread calumnies among the Israelites about the land they had scouted. So one opinion is that they exaggerate the danger. They spread things that are not true. Like um, they were speaking Lashon Hara about the land that they made up, you know, like huge terrifying stuff out of fear fear okay so that's that's one opinion that the, the calumny that's where the some of the commentators point meaning it's not true um they and how did they do that like about the land they had scouted saying quote 
The country that we traversed and scouted is one that devours its settlers. All the people that we saw in it are men of great size. Okay, if they're people of great size, how can it be a land that devours its settlers? If there's enough food and enough crops and enough flocks and enough water and vegetation to grow giants, how is it a land that devours itself? Right. So right there, there's already some for some of the commentators who are really looking to figure out what they did wrong. That's another place they point is you, you, you can't have both. They're already talking about something that cannot possibly be true. Right. And they're going crazy. Um, and making the people crazy is the other one. They didn't come back to Moshe and just report to Moshe. They spread this panic among the people that they needed to keep their mouth shut. Even if they were terrified, they needed to talk to Moses as the general and say, we have some real concerns about this, how this is going to happen. And they didn't even look for a solution at all. All the people that we saw on in it are men of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. <gasps> and the Anakites are part of the Nephilim. <gasps> right? So, you know, whoever you can imagine is striking terror in the hearts of the people. That's who they say lives there. And we looked like grasshoppers to ourselves. And here comes the big one that Aviva Zorenberg picks up on. And so we must have looked to them. This is where she points, because the Midrash goes here and says, here's the sin. You felt like grasshoppers? Okay. Right? And we're going to see it in her text. But how do you know what you looked like to them? How do you know, I didn't make you, says God in the Midrash, look like angels to them? So that that's the leap they make, assuming what somebody else, how they see you out of your own fear. Which is so human. Which is disastrously human. It is, it is odd that, say, uh, 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 troops were sent in to fight. You, they would be too busy, you know, defending themselves to even have a thought of what other people are thinking they looked like. Is You know, you have way too much time on your hands if you're a spy in a foreign country and you're thinking about what I look like to, to them. them. Yeah. And so something else is operating. And it's that something else that is the human tendency that this story is coming to teach about. All right. So chapter 14, where our triennial division begins. The whole community, yes, broke into loud cries. And the people wept that night. All right. So now the entire people is despondent and is weeping in their tents. All the Israelites, here we go, something new and different, railed against Moshe and Aaron. And what did they say? If only we had died in the land of Egypt, the whole community shouted at them. Or if only we might die in this wilderness why is God taking us to that land to fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be carried off. It would be better for us to go back to Egypt. And they said to one another, let us head back for Egypt. <laughs> You're shaking your head because you know what's coming, right? Right. So 
Here again, another part of the sin is the people, not just the scouts. The people's response is to weep in their tents and to bet and to say we would have been better for us to die in Egypt. Our wives and children are going to be carried off as slaves. Let us go back, right, to sure death and slavery, slavery and oppression. The sure slavery is preferable to the terror of the unknown. And and this is what we this is what we do. We'd rather stay. We'd rather go back to the Egypt we know than rally what it would take to really address the fear of moving forward and the risk involved in moving forward. Bert, what were you going to say? Yeah. Again, this reminds me that I think it was last week when Moses is talking to God and said, you know, if just why don't you just kill me? Why don't you just kill me? And here they're saying, well, let's just die in the wilderness. Seems like everybody always wants to die when they get in trouble. <laughs> and and go back to Egypt. And One remember, thing. like what what they just said, that just put in motion a bunch of stuff that because you can hear if you know the story, you can hear God going done, <laughs> done, done, and done, right. Careful what you pray for. Careful what you ask for, for ye may surely get it. And God hears this and is done, D-U-N, done. Moshe and Aaron fell on their faces, verse 5, before all the assembled congregation of the Israelites. Why? They were so dejected. That's my interpretation. I know you you feel like maybe it's fear because they're going to be stoned. But to me, they're just... We can't give any more. We've done everything we can do, and these people want to go back to Egypt. You know, I think they were done at that. Point. They were done. Yeah. So, what is that a, a Hebrew expression that we never use that in English? Somebody fell on their face. You think, what? What? What actually does that idiom mean? That when idiom. Someone fell on their face. So when you fall, you drop right. from a standing position, uh-huh. right? So it means you drop to your knees and forehead to the floor. Oh, so it's it's an intentional, yes, like an intentional uh, prostration. Prostrate. Yes, so they prostrate themselves before the people. So the rabbis want to see Moshe as always being concerned for the people, and so what he's doing is he is praying. He's who is he prostrating himself before God to say. Please don't do what I know you're about to do, right? Because Moshe knows when Moshe hears this, he and Aaron know what that's going to provoke. Better we should have died in Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt. Oh my God, right? They know what's coming. So, but it doesn't make a lot of sense because there hasn't been a punishment yet for them to, right, want to be, but possibly. Um, some say it is out of fear that they are who they're prostrating themselves before is the mob. The mob are ready to tear them apart. And what do you do when someone's coming at you? You roll over, right? Dogs know this. You you become humble and passive or you're torn to pieces. 
Either way, it's clear that they understand the gravity. Moshe and Aaron understand the gravity of the situation. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Yefuna, of those who had scouted the land, rent their clothes and exhorted the whole Israelite community. The land that we traversed and scouted is an exceedingly good land. If God is pleased with us, God will bring us into that land, a land that flows with milk and honey, and give it to us. Only you must not rebel against God. Have no fear then of the people of the country, for they are our prey. Their protection has departed from them, but God is with us. Have no fear of them. As the whole community threatened to pelt them with stones, the presence of God appeared in the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. So, so Caleb and Yoshua get it. They rend their clothes. What is that about? What is rending morning. one's clothes about? Morning. 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 It is the response to hearing that, that somebody's died. You tear your clothes. They know that this is not going to be good. And they say, they try to calm the people down. We were there. We saw, right? It's, it's good. And if God is pleased with us, we'll be brought into that land. It, and actually, it's chafetz. The word in Hebrew is chafetz. If God desires us. So, Aviva Zornberg plays with this a lot. Um, this idea of God desiring the people and the people not being able to believe that they are desirable. That's the sin. That's not even sin. That That's the blockage that prevents them from being able to see the good, to see the good is that they cannot experience themselves as desirable. And if I'm not lovable, if I'm not desired by God, I'm not going in. And that this is what the whole thing hinges on. And we'll, so we'll look at that in a moment. But we know something's got to happen first. Right? So, and God said to Moshe, how long will this people spurn me? And how long will they have no faith in me despite all the signs that I have performed in their midst? I will strike them with pestilence and disown them. And I will make of you a nation far more numerous than they. But Moshe said to God, when the Egyptians from whose midst you brought up this people in your might hear the news, they will tell it to the inhabitants of that land. Now they have heard that you, O God, are in the midst of this people, that you, O God, appear in plain sight when your cloud rests over them and when you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If then you slay this people to a man, the nations who have heard your fame will say, it must be because God was powerless to bring that people into the land, that God promised them on oath, that God slaughtered them in the wilderness. Therefore, I pray, let my God's forbearance be great, as you have declared, saying, Adonai, Erech, Apayim, Barab, Chesed, Nose, Avon, Vafesha, Vinake. Adonai, slow to anger and abounding in kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, yet not remitting all punishment, but visiting the iniquity of fathers upon children, upon the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray. Slachna, the iniquity of this people, according to your great kindness, as you have forgiven this people 
ever since Egypt. And God said, Salachti kibarecha. I pardon as you have asked. This is the first part of this, what we say, Yom Kippur. I was just thinking that. exactly right, Sarah. Mm-hmm. It's part of you are exactly part of right. In another place. I'm singing the song in my head. So we, so we're going to go there. Um, nevertheless, as I live and as God's presence fills the whole world, none of the men who have seen my presence and the signs that I have performed in Egypt and in the wilderness and who have tried me these many times and have disobeyed me shall see the land that I promised on oath to their fathers. None of those who spurn me shall see it, but my servant Caleb, because he was imbued with a different spirit and remained loyal to me, him will I bring into the land that he entered and his offspring shall hold it as a possession. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites occupy the valleys. Start out then tomorrow and march into the wilderness by way of the Sea of Reeds. And uh, Joshua doesn't go? So there are two traditions. One that has Joshua and Caleb and one that has only Caleb. There are two traditions about the scout narrative. This is really nice of Moses. I mean, after all, every you know the, the people are railing against him. He should be mad at them, as usual. And is God talking to everybody but he's Moses. or just to Moses? So it, it seems that God appears to everybody. So they're clear that God's kavod is present, mm-hmm. right? God's presence is manifest. Mm-hmm. It's a visible manifestation for them. <coughs> but it seems that God is addressing Moshe. So they know, and people know that they're going to die in the desert. They know after this. <clears throat> Correct. And Moses is so clever telling God that if you do this, you'll show your weakness. If you <laughs> do your this, reputation. your reputation <laughs> is shot. What are they, they going to say about you in the hood? What will the neighbors think? Well, <laughs> what will the other gangs think? That our gang leader can't can't pull this off, so killed us out in the desert because you couldn't bring us in. You couldn't beat up the Amalekites and the Canaanites, so you killed the people in the desert. You don't want people talking to trash about you like that. Doesn't get more anthropomorphic than this. It does not get more anthropomorphic <laughs> than this. Um, but ostensibly, you know, if God if God were all knowing and all powerful then God would have known already that the Israelites were going to do this. So for the rabbis, God always knows. But lets it happen anyway. God God can't do anything other than allow human beings to make their choices. That's that's the way it is. Even God is limited? Even God (laughs) God chooses To to be limited. By limiting God's self, God grants to humanity free will and has to live with the consequences and I think this is one of those times where God is like what was I thinking creating human right it's it's one of those times where it's like you know this is just a losing enterprise does this mirror what happens before the flood in a sense when when God looks at all the the people of the world and says I think I need to start over (laughs) and regrets having made humanity um, it is clearly the divine instinct 
who of us who are parents have not had <laughs> such a moment of regretting <laughs> having created or adopted this human? Um, right? There, there's there are these terrible, terrible existential moments of get out of my right, just get out of my way because I'm I'm taking her out. <laughs> So that's what God says to Moshe. Get out of the way because I'm done. I'm done. And I'm going to start over with you. This is the Noah project. But Noah did not do what Moshe does. This is how Moshe is a tzaddik and Noah is righteous only in his generation. Moshe is a tzaddik because Moshe says, wait, 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 wait. No, no. You don't want to go there. So of course, for the tradition, God is not convinced by the first part of Moshe's argument, but by the second part, right? God's reputation, what would it say about God if that is what moves God to forgive the people, right? Um, so for the tradition, they don't like that. Um, instead, it is when Moshe quotes God, when Moshe quotes God to God, God has to think a little bit differently about really what God's right. about to do. So why do we know this? So Moshe says to God, wait, 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 wait. You are, if I recall, Erech Apayim, Rab Chesed Ve'emet, How does Moshe know that? How does Moshe know God is slow to anger, forgiving, loving? When God passed before Moses, when Moses is in the cleft of the rock. Because God, what God says, says so. Back in Exodus. Moshe says, let me see you. And God says, you can't, a human being cannot see me, Bahai, and remain living in the same way. I put in parentheses always, in the same way. It doesn't mean you can't see me. It means you can't see me in the high. And you need to high right now. You have a job to do. So don't worry about seeing me. You need to be doing life. And you can't do that if you confront the reality, capital R, that is God. So go about your business. I will tell you something. And God self-discloses. Adonai, Adonai, El-Rachum V'chanun. So God says, as God passes before Moshe, Adonai, Adonai is a God of mercy and compassion, slow to anger, right? And so Moshe quotes God. That incident here to God saying, so, like obliterating the people, slow to anger. They really don't go together very well. And it's God hearing God's own self-disclosure of who God understands God to be that convinces God to not act contrary to those words. In a way, this mirrors Abraham and the Sodom and Gomorrah story, where Abraham says, "God, you're a just God. How can you do this?" Kind of correct. It's like Again, a kid looks at you and says, "But you told me." Absolutely. <laughs> and the Abraham story, where God yeah. doesn't say rise. So Abraham and Moshe, both people who argue mm-hmm. with God when God is fixing to do something that the people deserve. Mm-hmm. Let's be clear, which is why I love it that this is part of the Yom Kippur liturgy. As Sarah pointed out. Why do I love that? Because the people deserve to be obliterated in this moment. And it is in that moment that 
that Moshe prays these words, so we pray them on Yom Kippur. The words that worked. <laughs> we pray them with fervor on Yom Kippur because we know what we deserve for the ways we've behaved. But what we want is what these people got, which was, you know, they didn't get what was justice. Mm -hmm. They got a response that was about compassion. And the words that we include in that liturgy, right? Pardon, I pray the iniquity of this people according to your great kindness. We pray these words every Yom Kippur as you have forgiven this people ever since Egypt. Lest we forget from whom we descend. We descend from the people who complained from the moment they left Egypt. These are our ancestors. This is, this is who we are. And God says, Salach right? So the music for this is very powerful, as you can imagine. Um, Salach Varecha. I have forgiven in, in accordance with what you've spoken, what you've said. So if that's true, if they are forgiven, why... Does it go on to say they're going to die in the desert? I will do just as you have urged me. In this very wilderness shall your carcass mm -hmm. drop. Mm. He allowed them 40 more years of life. So they get to live. They, get to live. they don't get to go into the land. Yeah, and as you, you brought up a number of times, that that time in the desert... Maybe they didn't really want to go into the land. Maybe they wanted to stay in the, the desert in that special time period under the protection so close to God. Maybe they really didn't want to go into the land. Isn't this part of that interplay between justice and compassion? In what sense? Well, in the sense that you know, strict justice would have been, like you said, kill them. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, God acted with compassion to let them live. In, in other words, they were not, it wasn't wiped 100% clean for them. They didn't get to the promised land, but nevertheless, they got to live. So for some people, it's a mitigated punishment that they get to live, but they're still punished. Um, right? Thus, you shall know what it means to thwart me. Right? Says the text. So it's very clear and God is still angry um, for those who spread such calumnies about the land, right? So, I mean, it, it, God is not happy. Other people see this as consequence. God finally gets it. God finally learns that this people not is not ready. They cannot go up into the land. They are slaves and even though they were freed, even though they witnessed all of these amazing things and their rescue and the chafetz God has for them, the desire that God has for them, they cannot see themselves as desirable. They cannot see themselves as lovable. Therefore, they continually reject the promise of love. I will bring you safely into our new home. And they cannot believe it. They are unable to believe it. And so they cannot go up into the land. 
It has to be their children. And God finally gets it here. And that's what this is about. It's about God articulating the reality. They're too broken. They're too weak. They are just, their self-esteem is just not in place. They don't have the ability, the capacity to understand themselves as truly lovable. David? If, if this passage had been written today by modern Israelis, I can't believe that they would ever have written this this way. Say more? Because <clears throat> this whole notion of the people being powerless, in fact, when they have opportunities, they turn away. And you look at Israel today saying, no more. We are a strong people. We don't need the petitionary presence of a Moses or an Aaron. We will do this ourselves. So is, what, what, what connection is there? Or is there a connection? Some people suggest that the response of the Israelis never again watch this is actually one of fear. The over, the over militarized, you know, kind of gestalt is about really internalized anti-Semitism and really still feeling like vermin and really still feeling like sheep led to the slaughter. And all this bluster is about dealing with that. That it's really a symptom of that, that we still see ourselves as a weak people so we make all this racket and all this we do all this saber rattling because we don't believe it it's just hard to believe that would be the case well that's that's one way of looking at it but another way is the never again way because the reality of the holocaust was so unbelievably horrible and these people, some of them experienced it, or their parents or relatives did. And so never again is, uh, is a very strong motivation. So I, I'm, I 100% agree. I'm just not, I'm just saying that I'm not sure it's not connected to trauma. Yeah. That it's still a, it's still a fear-based they, how many times do we hear it could happen again? It could happen again. It could happen here. We hear it all. I grew up hearing that. It could happen again, right? So, it's a real, it's a motivation of fear, and that a lot of the explosive reactions that people have around the topic of Israel, you can't talk about the topic of Israel without incredibly damaging stuff getting said by people who would never say that about anything else. I have witnessed horrible things being said to people. Wait, hang on, hang on. Um, And that that charge, the kind of explosive nature of the conversation is related to the fear. That that that's why people get so worked up, because they're terrified that Israel could be destroyed by her neighbors, That, that it could happen again, that it could happen here. And then what do we do? And so it's this existential PTSD response. That is not separate from what we're dealing with here. 
I don't think it's so separate. But, but it is separate. I mean, here you have a, a people cowering in fear, actually almost desiring to go back to slavery. And today you have a people motivated by fear, I'll certainly believe you that. You also could say motivated by reality, by the way. Mm-hmm. So, which is somewhat different. There's always, there's always there's reality to our fears. There's always, well, in this case, always. There is reality, but the reaction is much different. Rather than cowering, they're standing there and saying, we don't need Caleb. We don't need All right, so We're going to I totally hear you, and I totally support that reading. I just don't. I'm just not. It just doesn't speak to me. I guess I. I think we're the same people, and I think we react this way all the time. And I think part of the reason they can't move forward in Israel either is because they're still here in the desert. The re- Israel's a mess. <laughs> It's that's a mess. Yeah, that's true. Why is it a mess? Why can't they move forward? Why can't they figure it out? Because they're still whining and complaining and scared, and they're gonna kill us and never again. And what? It's the same foot stomping, different words. And then now there's no Moses. Oh. <laughs> um, right. It's and so I'm not being. I'm not trying to be overly critical. I just. I think it's natural. I think this is where we get stuck, and it's why the politics over there are so stuck. Because nobody's got the courage, really, to live into what a new reality might look like. Because we're so afraid. And I get it. And I get it that it's reality. This was reality, too. Those cities were big. The inhabitants were huge. That was a reality. The people did not have the capacity... To trust that they could overcome even that reality if they moved forward with faith. So if we come ahead of 2,000 years and you're saying this position is the same, can I extrapolate that and say your view would be that Jews will always see themselves as a weak and helpless minority? There is no capacity to change. It is our nature. No, I would say this story is coming to teach us that we we have a te- natural tendency to see ourselves as helpless, as undesirable, our self-esteem is in the toilet and 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 the challenge is not to do this. It's to do something else. It's to do something different than this. And that is the that's the eternal call of Torah that's the eternal call of God stop it stop it I love you trust me you've seen what I can do for you I can handle it trust me and that's the eternal call of this story can we do that are we willing to trust are we that is the eternal question the answer is no. I'm not saying the answer is no. Then what conditions exist that will make that happen? So let's look at Yael Shai and Aviva Zornberg. Brought to my mind, when you came back from Israel uh, last summer, yeah. and I, I, if I'm quoting you wrong, correct me, but I think uh, you said that you were having some discussions about the feelings of Americans about Israelis with your Israeli friends, and they 
said to you that you think like an American and you don't think like an Israeli because you have not been exposed to the kind of uh, life that uh, that they have uh, there. Correct. And it was interesting to me and in lieu of this uh, discussion today. Mm-hmm. To, uh, she and and one of the things I I was asking a question, and she said. That's a Western question. Mm-hmm. Like, even your question is not a Middle Eastern question. You're asking a Western question. What was the question? Yeah. Like, why can't y'all figure it out over here? <laughs> like, what's the problem? You know, like, and she's like, that, that's a Western question. One of the problems is all you have to do is look at the map <laughs> and see where the Golan is, where Syria is, where... I'm sorry, you know, they're really surrounded. 100%. It's very hard to understand someone if you have not stood in their place. Absolutely. And that works works both ways as well. And and this is a, a, I mean, Israel or no Israel, whatever, in, in whatever situation, you know, sometimes disagreements have to do with people are standing in different places, and what they're seeing is something different. Um, Anybody who's dealt cross culturally, you know that. So, um, so, and I just want to be clear: I, I did not make the jump to Israel. Israel. <laughs> I did not go there. David went there. All right. So, <laughs> thirteen. I know he's going to keep trying. Uh, chapter 13, verse 28 is what Rabbi um, Yael Shai is going to quote because that's where Aviva Zorenberg locates some of her commentary on this. So chapter 13, verse 28, right? We came to the land that you sent us to. This is the scouts. It does indeed flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. And they bring gorgeous, amazing, huge grapes, right? That's why we have that picture on the Kedem wine of the guys with the big thing of grapes, right? Because the scouts brought those back. Here's its fruit. However, they go on. The people who inhabit the country are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the Anakites there. (coughs) What is the word used for however here? It is not the usual. It's not a disjunctive vav. And it's not other words that mean however. The Hebrew, verse 28, the first word is Ephes. What does Ephes generally mean when we hear the word Ephes? Zero. Ephes is zero. Nothing. Bupkis, Ephes. Okay? So that's what we're going to be working with. Ephes. So drop down to that word. You'll see Numbers 1328 on your sheet. Drop down below that. Ephes, the unusual word that translates here as however, actually means nothing or zero. Aviva Zornberg notes that this pivot in their response, right from it's a land flowing milk and honey, it here's its fruit, the pivot is Ephes. I just lost my place. Um, so the Aviva Zornberg notes that this pivot in their response highlights the nothingness that the spies feel about themselves. Ephes, we're nothing. 
That's really what they're articulating. With their next part of what they're saying, what they're really articulating is we are FS. We are nothing. What the spies see, right? What are scouts sent to do? They're sent to go look. Use your eyes and come back and tell us what you see. So what the spies see, therefore, convulses them not simply with fear, but with a sense of intimate ethos. They are annihilated. The word aliyah, going up to the land, is suffused with the sense of looking upward at the contemptuous eyes of the gigantic inhabitants of that land. To see for them is to allow the world to mirror their deepest life. Yes? They see a projection of their own sense of nothingness. There is a problem with the spy's vision. What they see is confused by the overwhelming fear and self-loathing they feel about themselves, causing them to see certain danger and failure where there might not be any. doesn't matter how big and how numerous the enemy is. They said, we look like grasshoppers in our own eyes. God said, this I can overlook. But And so we looked in their eyes. Now I'm angry. Did you know how I made you look in their eyes? Who told you that you didn't look like angels in their eyes? This is from the Mishnah. The Israelites, despite all evidence to the contrary, are still so consumed with hatred for themselves. They see hatred and failure everywhere, unable to imagine what God imagines for them. They want to go back to Egypt again, the place where hatred and death was guaranteed, rather than face the scary and overwhelming possibility that they might actually succeed on their journey. So, read through a psychological lens, right, second paragraph, God is simply stating the truth rather than making a decree. The parts of ourselves that cannot see clearly, to your question, David, the parts that cling with a death grip to old images of ourselves, ourselves as defective, powerless, and unworthy, will have to die so that we can grow into who we are meant to be. We cannot kill these parts of ourselves as God doesn't outright kill the people, right? God could have said, boom, done. But that's not how it works. This is a psychological truth as well as a mythological story, right? What is the truth? We have to sit in meditation, understand them as much as we can, and see them as parts of ourselves, but not the whole of ourselves. We have to see and strengthen, quote, the next generation within us our holiness, compassion, and love, so that these self-conceptions become more reliable and more vibrant than the delusional visions of self-hate. That is the call. That's the call. That's what we're supposed to do, is sit still, shut up, calm down, take a breath, and wait. And allow ourselves to hold the fear, to see the parts of ourselves that we think are unlovable, and to not split them off. 
to integrate those parts of ourselves with love, all the things that Moshe said about God, with holiness and compassion and empathy and patience and grace and forgiveness and transformation. Chain. We are to hold those parts of ourselves in that way because then that trope becomes the dominant trope that we are lovable because we're doing it. I am lovable when I experience love of myself. And we're so afraid that we we turn and we want to go back to Egypt. Because the suffering, that's familiar. That's something I know about. Being unlovable, being unloved, being the victim. That, that's easy. Blanche? I know that here in the United States, we have such a problem integrating with the people we've invited to come to our country, Mm -hmm. the people of color. Mm -hmm. And in spite of all our efforts, it's still going on. And I think of Israel and the articles in the Jewish Journal about the fact that the schools are not integrated, the housing is not integrated, the businesses are not integrated, and what that does to the generation that have grown up in Israel and are not born to the land, or the ancestors have not born. It is a devastating problem. And I don't see anyone trying to change it. So this is part of the frustration. This is part of the damage that I was, I think I was trying to get at when we stay in that place of focusing on the enemy and we're going to die and so we have to militarize. Guess what doesn't get addressed? The part of me that does not love the Ethiopian the same as my white European neighbors. That does not get healed. That does not get looked at. It does not get acknowledged. It does not get addressed. It does not get repaired. And this is a terrible problem that's happening in Israel. The battered women's shelters are full. Full. One in four live below the poverty line. The education system is crumbling. Gangs, gangs of young men are wreaking violence and havoc on each other because their parents don't speak the language. So the kids are running the family in in a culture that the grandfather used to be the patriarch. In one generation, the teenagers have all the power. What happens when you give teenagers ultimate power? Terrible things. The Lord of the Flies. And so some of those neighborhoods, that's what it's like because they are the ones running the show. So, but that can't get looked at when the focus is out there and we're going to die. And I'm not saying that doesn't need to be addressed. Of course it does. The hyper focus on it, though, and this is, and I, this is from talking with Israelis. I'm, and this is not my opinion. This is for hearing from Israelis like I'm not Hoffman. 
who says as long as we're going to spend most of our money on the military, there is no money for schools. There's there's no there's no money for infrastructure. There's there's no money to to make something of the next generation to truly look at issues of integration, of sexism, of religious pluralism. There's no energy or resources left when it's all gobbled up by the the matzav the situation. And and so I, it definitely yes and yes and for us individually the same thing happens is what Gail Shai is saying right that we we focus on what's out there out of a sense of you know true struggle with feeling lovable and we focus so much out there that we don't focus on the broken damaged wounded parts of ourselves and when we split that off it always has a lot more influence right than when we do exactly what we think we're not capable of which is loving even those parts of ourselves turn turn over your packet to page 142 this is from Aviva Zornberg's book Bewilderments her book on the book her work on the book of numbers if for example, one's emotional reality or truth is despair, what is most important is not that one may be in despair, but one's attitudes towards one's despair. Through one's basic attentiveness, one's despair can declare itself and tell its story. One enters profound dialogue with it. This is the critical piece. Yes? That we despair is not the problem. That we over-identify with despair is the problem. We don't want to go there. But really, it rules everything we do, every decision we make, every relationship we enter. What she's saying is, it's our attitude towards our own despair and our ability to have deep dialogue with that part of ourselves that enables healing that enables real love to happen. Trust that I'm lovable. Therefore, a willingness to enter healthy, loving relationship. And what she's talking about is the divine human, right, that we see here in this Parsha. That God so wants this people to live into what God sees for them. And they just can't do it. It is striking second paragraph, third paragraph on the page, that only after Moses at the beginning of Deuteronomy has confronted the people with the full extent of their hatred can he begin to explore a new vocabulary of emotional connection between his people and God. Loving, yearning, desiring, right? This word, chafetz, that we saw in our text, appear for the first time in the language of relationship a movement of feeling flowing both ways. For instance, God asks for their love because, quote, it was only your fathers that God desired in God's love for them so that God chose you, their descendants, from among all peoples this very day. Right? So this is Deuteronomy. Moses trying to tell them God loved your ancestors. That's why you have been chosen because you're theirs. 
And God desired your ancestors. God's desire becomes an existential reality for the Israelites. They become capable, to your point, David, of seeing themselves as desirable and desired. And on this basis, they can be asked to love God, litov lach, for your good. And later, somewhere else, she says, bechol levavcha, with all your heart. Right? That's in Deuteronomy. And what, remember we've studied the two vets. It should be one vet, your heart, libcha, and it's levavecha, two vets. Why? Not a vav, a vet. Two vets, and the Sfat teaches, so she's quoting the Sfat with both your hearts, your evil inclination and your good inclination. You must love God with both. That is to this point. Only when we can understand and accept ourselves, experience ourselves as desired and desirable, can we have a free flow of that between us and the divine. Only then can we love God with both our hearts, our whole selves, and only then can we love another human being that way, the reflection of the divine, and be loved and open ourselves to trust and be vulnerable enough to truly be seen, known, witnessed, and held in our own complicated glory. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.